So before I start the formal talk, I wanted to mention about how to listen to a Dharma talk. And I was thinking about this when John was talking yesterday that it's really good to listen to a Dharma talk like you would listen to the rain. You're often not wanting it to be a particular way when you're listening to the rain, not needing it to be one thing or another. So just allowing that to be as a possible way to take in John and my teachings like listening to the rain. The fire of change. Lately, I've been using a, a photograph or a slide to represent the challenges of these times. So I'm going to show you a slide of what is called a Hawaiian rock runner. You can go ahead and put that up, Paul. So the Hawaiian surfers, and this is a, a famous woman surfer, a Hawaiian surfer, they carry oftentimes 50 pound rocks. It looks like that could be a, at least close to a 50 pound rock she's carrying. And they're 20 to 30 feet underwater running. They're called rock runners and they run with these rocks underwater. Why do they do this? So these are their training rocks, their adversity rocks, and they're training to, to be strong and when they're held underwater by wave after wave when they're surfing and they can't breathe and they think they're gonna die, they know they have the stamina to withstand it. So these, this training rock she's carrying is to teach her how to survive near death experiences, is to teach her that she knows she has a resilience to make it through no matter what kind of wave pounds on her and rolls her over a hundred times in the water and she can't breathe. She knows that she can stay underwater with this weight, she can face it. So you can take the slide down. Thank you. So COVID is our training rock and use it. Think about you're carrying this rock for the last two years. And Climate change in your area will be your training rock. And we're using this to build qualities, to build strengths. It's not just for nothing, to make you a better surfer, to make you a better human being. So when adversarial events come, you've committed, you committed to your training rock, you commit to the storm, you commit to the fire of change, you commit to whatever life brings you. Why? So you can learn. You know, 2,500 years ago, the Buddha talked about fire. He had what's called the fire sermon. I mean, there aren't sermons in Buddhism, but this was a fire sutta. And he really talked about the world is burning. Everything is burning. And that urgency that it takes. It was uh, the Adita Sutta. He says, bhikkhu, bhikkhus is monks and nuns. 
Form is burning, feeling is burning, perception is burning, volitional forms are burning, consciousness is burning. Seen thus, bhikkhus, the instructed noble disciple experiences discontent towards feeling, perception, volitional forms, consciousness, and through dispassion, the mind is liberated. So using this fire of change to liberate, to be your training rock, to create spiritual urgency. In the fire of change, know what is unchangeable. And all this change, the challenge, the rock to carry is what's unchangeable? Awareness or stillness, love, infinity. And, you know, it can help to know this unchangeability. Know your deathbed goal. Like we've talked about, whatever on your deathbed, freedom, calm. You can find the unchanging nature of that here and now. You know, COVID has really shown us that we could die any time. And climate change events show us that too. You know, one of our retreat participants I was talking to today almost died of COVID this year and continues to have chronic issues. And that almost dying for this retreat and was the cause of, a, of waking up to a whole new level of understanding about the Dharma. So don't underestimate the fire of change as a wake up call. One of our members, it was a wake up call. And it really shows you don't think you can practice later, practice now with whatever's in front of you. Whatever's in front of you, whether it's an angry person or it's something else, it's fear, that's your training rock. And remember that every developmental change always um, includes frustration and fear. When you're trying to ride a bike, it wasn't easy. You didn't want to, you fell a lot, scary. So you're gonna be afraid. Carl Jung says, every advance in consciousness is experienced as a defeat by the ego. The ego doesn't like the change, but our consciousness likes that we have this fire of change. It likes learning and growing. So use these events, whatever they are, whether it's you know, COVID in your family or your own body or climate change to go to the next level. Don't catch the virus of anger and fear and disconnection. No matter what anyone's doing around you, don't catch the virus of whatever their mind state is. That's important. And like John and I talked about, we've been talking about the hippocampus and the amygdala and its response to trauma and the way that both the hippocampus and amygdala can distort reality. 
the great thing is Dharma people, we know that. We know this, we can bring awareness to this and not get lost in these mind states. Don't catch the virus of fear and anger. You know, we're really lucky because when you look at the pandemic of 1918, they didn't know about trauma. And when you don't understand how the mind works around adversarial events, you can't bring compassion, you can't bring wisdom to them. So, you know, 100 years later, we have so much more mindfulness about how this is affecting the human brain and the heart and how to move to the next level with all this. So not letting trauma affect you. And there's a really simple way to think about this. Uh, you can go ahead and put up David White's slide. David White has a wonderful poem, or it's a, it's a piece from one of his poems. When your eyes are tired, the world is tired also. So just to remember that, you know, that this is how our mind states can affect the world. So take care of how you're looking at things. Well, you can take that down. Thank you. I was listening to a podcast for therapists a few months ago, and they were talking about new research just on the normal brain. This is not trauma brain. And they said that every six seconds, we are scanning the environment for safe, unsafe, safe, unsafe. Every six seconds. So we're constantly evaluating, is it safe, is it not safe? And then we're adjusting. So like John said, that's a lot of cortisol every six seconds. So it made me realize, wow, we're never really safe for more than six seconds. And that's normal brain. So it made me really start to feel and think, well, what does that mean? I'm safe, I'm unsafe, I'm safe, I'm unsafe. And what it made me realize, we have to come to these deeper principles. A, it means the safety's not out there. You're not gonna find a person, place, or thing that's gonna make you feel safe, that you could grab onto like that doesn't change. So where does that leave us? We have to find the safety inside. We have to be the refuge. We have to be the safe place. Tag, you're it. You're it. You're the safety that you seek. You're it. And hopefully when that six seconds thing rolls around, you come back to here. You're looking inside and you're the safe place. Then the six second rule doesn't apply or doesn't have to matter as much. And part of being the safe place is really to work with the fear mind and really fear comes with a sense of self. And it comes with thinking about the future. 
So moving beyond fear to fearlessness is part of our training rock. And um, a friend sent me a little clip from Will Smith. Uh, he did a movie called Earth, and it's a sci-fi movie. And this clip really exemplifies it. It's about two minutes. And the more Dharma teaching on fear is at the end. But it really helps us understand on working with fear. So go ahead and show the movie, Paul. I'm thinking I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I cannot believe this is how I'm going to die. I can see my blood bubbling up, mixing with the sunlight, shining through the water. And I think, wow. That's really pretty. And everything slows down. I see his pincer through my shoulder. And I decide, I don't want that in there anymore. So I pull it out. And he lets me go. And more than that, I can tell it can't find me. Doesn't even know where to look. And it dawned on me. Fear is not real. The only place that fear can exist is in our thoughts of the future. It is a product of our imagination, causing us to fear things that do not at present and may not ever exist. That is near insanity, Katar. Now do not misunderstand me. Danger is very real, but fear is a choice. We are all telling ourselves a story. And that day mine changed. Thank you, Paul. Fear is a choice. You never know where you're going to find the Dharma in a movie. So take this fire of change, the fear, to the next level. In addition to becoming fearless, like Will Smith talked about here, you can even take it to a deeper challenge, which is finding unity in separation. The limited, limited mind states we find the world in or caught in, the limited can take us to the unlimited. One thing to remember, friends, is we only divide in concepts. 
Otherwise, nothing's divided. We only divide in concepts. Otherwise, nothing's divided. So this unity state, this unlimited, it's always here. When we stop creating that story. Burmese monk Utejaniya said it quite well. He's a teacher in our tradition. He said, people out there and what they are doing are concepts. Moreover, objects out there are not doing anything but minding their own business. But this mind is not minding its own business and it's getting into all sorts of trouble. This is the relationship that we want to take care of and this is what practice is all about. So the mind not getting into endless beliefs and concepts and getting into trouble. It's really almost like, you know, when you think about thoughts and concepts, you're throwing paint at the world and it's landing on things and colors and form and doo, doo, doo. You're creating this whole world by throwing your concepts of paint on everything. We create what my teachers call, my teacher calls it an outward samadhi state. And we know what inward samadhi is a concentration. Well, he says that outward samadhi is we become fully absorbed in what we are not, glued to a concept of a separate me with things out there. And we become entranced in this outward samadhi state that we created by throwing stuff onto forms. So what to do? <laughs> All meditation is really aimed at breaking the trance, whether you call it outward samadhi or something else, the trance of the thought and mind. It's aimed at bringing us down from that trance into what's changeless, awareness and love and stillness, awareness and stillness I'm using interchangeably. So in the fire of change, know what's unchangeable. So awareness first. Awareness is really a very true refuge as we've been pointing out this retreat, awareness is pointed out and used in meditation. Why? Because it has no thoughts. There's a key here. It's the one thing that has no thoughts. When you're really in awareness itself, doesn't have thoughts. So that's why it's such an important refuge. It's a clean refuge. Awareness sees mind states, but is not a mind state. That's a great gift to be able to see things, but not be of them. So really let yourself be ruthless and sifting down to the awareness level itself. And you can dwell as awareness inside. Meditation, all the tools of meditation are teaching us to come down from the mind and dwell as awareness inside. 
And there's a couple ways you can do that with bringing awareness inside. One is to notice that awareness exists in between everything. So no matter how busy our thoughts and words and emotions get, da, 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 there's a space in between everything. There's a space in between the words and emotions. And you can always rest in that, what's in between. It's that emotions and words have a wave-like quality and in between waves, there's a pause. And emotions and thoughts really kind of come as one package. Oftentimes, emotions are this high energy thought state, but you can still find the, the pauses in between. So Paul, go ahead and put up that the energy and motion slide. So emotions really are energy in motion. And this is a big wave on the, um, it's on Oahu. And even though with that big wave, there's actually a pause between the waves and a space in between that you can make use of and you can dwell in that awareness in between. And there's a poem called The Trough, which is about this. You can take down the slide. It's by Judy Brown. There's a trough in waves, a low spot where horizon disappears and only sky and water are our company. And there we lose our way unless we rest, knowing the wave will bring us to its crest again. There we may drown if we let fear hold us in its grip and shake us side to side and leave us flailing, torn, disoriented. But if we rest there in the trough in silence, being in the low part of the wave, keeping our energy and noticing the shape of things, the flow, then time alone will bring us to another place where we can see horizon, see land again, regain our sense of where we are and where we need to swim. So being in that low part of the wave and noticing the shape of things that's dwelling in awareness. Another way you can dwell in awareness is to make it the center. So there's a space between awareness is at the center of everything. So think about a tornado or a hurricane, you know, tornadoes in the Midwest, there's the, the eye, right? And the eye is calm. So no matter how crazy it gets in your life or with pandemics or hurricanes or whatever, just know that there is an eye in the center, in the middle. And in a way, this is what the Buddha called, it was really meaning by the middle way. It wasn't like some average or mean. It's like go into the middle, go into the center and just watch everything happening, the storm happening around you. You can be in the middle and you can be that calm in the middle. You can be that. And there's a really nice example from Deepama about how when we're that calm and we're that center, 
we can affect others. We can have an effect on others when we're that awareness, that steady mountain of calm. And this is from Catherine Ingram. What I remember most about Deepama was the total stillness and unmoving sense of quiet in her. In the winter of 1976, my friend Alan Clements and I were spending some time in Calcutta with Manindra and Deepama. One day, Deep Manindra invited us to attend a lecture he was giving that night. We rode over with Manindra and Deepama and arrived very early. Alan, Deepama, and I settled into the front row. Gradually, the room began to fill up. 20 minutes later, there were about 200 people jammed in a room we would not have put more than 50 in. My legs were sort of on top of Deepama's. I was practically on her lap. Then Menindra proceeded to give a five-hour lecture in Bengali. So here we were in stifling hot overcrowded room listening to five hours in Bengali. It took everything I had to stay put and I felt as if there were Mexican jumping beans in my body. I was squirming, fidgeting, and sighing, but Deepama was a mountain of serenity. She was in some kind of deep concentration for those five hours, and in my agitation, I kept coming back to her silence and stillness, and it would calm me. That was what got me through. She didn't even seem to notice my struggling. There was no judgment just a radiating sense of ease and calm. So when we're resting in that center, we can help others. And it doesn't take you being a mountain of calm like Deepama. You can see the silence, the inherent silence in everything right here, right now. This cup, is silent. It's silent. It's not talking. This necklace is not talking. The chair you're in is silent. And then, of course, you look at the trees outside the window. They're silent. Everything has this stillness in it. And when you really start to look around, it's like you're bombarded with stillness. We're in a hall of silence, really, even when noise is happening. Everything is inherently silent. We just imagine it's bombarding us and noisy, but it's actually still. So you can play around with that inherent stillness. So lastly, the cultivating the awareness refuge. Awareness can be seen as in between the spaces in between things at the center. It also surrounds everything. So anytime you want to step back, you can see the whole thing with awareness. And the awareness is like, you know, when you think about it, again, a tornado or a hurricane, the center is calm, but all around it is calm too. At the edges, when you go beyond the edges of a storm, it's calm. Think bigger than the storm, it's always calm.
Ajahn Sumedho used the analogy of this as like, you know, if you saw a raging river, that might be our emotions or the world these days, right? And he said, well, get up on the bridge and look down. Look down on the raging river. Don't jump down in it. Be on the bridge watching the water. Another way is you can imagine that the mind and emotions are like a snow globe and you've all had a snow globe. And what if your awareness is holding your mind and emotions like a snow globe and then, you know, here it is, it gets shaken up, it's not shaken up, but, you know, if your awareness itself is just looking and watching this snow globe, you know, at stepping back. So the last way of this stepping back, um, when I was complaining to my teacher about having a lot of judgment on what people were doing in the pandemic or not doing, and it's been a lot of, and why people come here and they party, like there's no tomorrow, right? And so, you know, I was complaining about judging and he just sent me this little video of dogs chasing each other. Paul, go ahead and put that up. This was his response to judgment. <laughs> so this is what the mind, he, his, the statement is, okay, so you're judging what other people are doing and it's one dog chasing another and thought and emotion just goes, just has to go, it's going nowhere, right? <laughs> It's a nice humorous way to look at the whole process here of one dog chasing another. Well, people shouldn't do that and da 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 da. So if you get caught in what you're thinking, do watch this for hours. This is what the mind does. This is what it goes nowhere. It goes nowhere. Thank you, Paul. It's this kind of macro awareness versus we're lost in the minutiae. You're just stepping back and going, oh my God, it's just going around and around and around. And, you know, on a practical level, Deepama would say, you know, when you couldn't be mindful like on a minutiae, and this was useful for you in a home retreat, she'd say, go macro. So she would say, you know, when you're rushing, note rushing. You don't have to worry about, you know, the nuances of your movement, just, oh, I'm rushing, right? So there can be these big level awareness that is not rushing, awareness that knows you're rushing. And if you can't remember anything, just remember how would infinity see this? How would infinity see this pandemic? How would infinity see people that are angry on the freeway? How would infinity see this? Infinite view. Because we're not separate from infinity. So the more you can just ask yourself that question, and I use it often in my practice, how would infinity see this? then you can move into that non-separate infinite view versus lost in our mind view. So again, that opens us out. 
And this bigger perspective is so well described by Ramana Maharshi, who is a non-dual teacher in Southern India. He really encourages us to bring this idea of a movie screen that all thoughts and emotions are playing out. So Paul, go ahead and put up the first slide. So Ramana says, your body, thoughts and emotions are just like the moving pictures in a movie screen. You are pure awareness. So here's this screen of pure awareness. You are just like this movie screen, the pure awareness which lights up the contents of your mind is similar to this screen. It doesn't have any attributes, cannot be pointed out, and cannot be observed by any means. So go to the next screen. There is a fire in the screen, but the screen doesn't burn. And the next one. There is water in the screen, but the screen doesn't get wet. And the next. There are movements on the screen, but the screen never moves. And then the last one. So then he says, when, you know, just knowing yourself as a screen here, the first step in the spiritual path is to understand how to abide as the witness or pure awareness and not get identified with each thought or emotion that arises and passes away. This direct form of meditation will lead to complete cessation of the sense of a separate and consistent self. This finally leads to a oneness in which the observer and the observed merge together with no distinctions. So you can take that down. That's big. So this is where meditation is leading. The observer and the observed merge together with no distinctions. It's big stuff. So finding what's unchanging, awareness as a refuge, and awareness and finding it in different ways like I described. And lastly, love as a refuge. Love as a cultivation, as your training rock that you're carrying, that you're learning here in these times. And you know, we've had a, a number of events since I've lived here in Hawaii that you know, one was they thought a missile was going to hit here and we had 15 minutes to live. I mean, it turned out it was a false alarm, but nobody knew that at the time. And then we often have, you know, an earthquake happens in Japan or somewhere and we have these tsunamis that are coming and they have no idea how big they're going to be and what they're going to destroy, how many people they're going to kill. So there's often this waiting period and it's really amazing for me to realize every waiting period my go-to is always meta. It's not some kind of like mindfulness or, I mean, there is mindfulness in meta, of course. But I always go to loving kindness. So that really shows me something that that's a deep, deep refuge. 
It's a bottom line refuge. And what's really beautiful for these times is um, since the pandemic, the aversive emotions in Buddhist Buddhism, they talk about aversive emotions. They've been they've been like on the rise, right? And aversive emotions are anger, fear, sadness, ups, disappointment. I think there's another one, worry, discouragement. These are all aversive emotions, different flavors. And what's the antidote in Buddhism the, for aversive emotions? The antidote is metta or loving kindness. So it's perfect for these times when aversive emotions are on the rise. It's your training rock. And the beautiful thing is the Brahma Viharas or the different cultivations of mind are all about love. They're each one's about love. So of course we know metta or loving kindness is about love. But when you look at compassion or karuna, that's about love when there's suffering, love when there's pain. When you look at mudita or enjoying other people's joy, that's about love when there's joy. Or love when you could feel jealous, you feel love instead. And then upeka or equanimity, that's about love when it's calm or finding the love that is calm in the storm. So each one of the Brahma Viharas is really a different form of love. So you can practice those, those of you that know about the Brahma Viharas, and you're practicing different flavors of love, different versions of love. These can be your training rocks. David Hawkins, he said, Love is misunderstood as an emotion. Love is actually a state of awareness. And when I read that, it really uh, made me reflect a lot. Love is a state of awareness. Can you be this state of awareness? Can you practice it 24-7? Not as an emotion, but as a way of being. And again, with Deepama, they talked about how when she would bow, they said she was love bowing to love. No one there, just love all the way through. You can be that too. She wasn't something that you don't inherently have. So a couple of things on how to be that love. So we're up here. So love accessing more the heart space is to take the elevator down. I was just talking with someone today about taking the elevator down into the heart. The head is so loud. It's these dogs chasing, right? It's very compelling <laughs> to watch them. But remember, this is all just noise and sounds and concepts like Utejaniya said, you can take 
the elevator down to here where it's really quiet and not just your heart. Don't think just your heart, but think the, the heart of the universe, the one spiritual heart. The center of your heart. It's like taking going below the waves. So think of my teacher describes it as like mind is on top of the true refuges. Mind is just like the waves, and then you go down below that deep, infinite love, that deep, infinite awareness, the one awareness, the one heart is below the mind. So you don't need to get rid of mind, just dropping down. The beautiful thing about the heart is the heart is direct. No thoughts are needed. And even you could say this about the gut, you go below to the gut. The gut is direct as well. And in some traditions, I can't remember, it's, I think it's Tibetan, they talk about the upward facing heart. And they say that as Westerners, we have a downward facing heart. So imagine if that's true, what would it be like to like flip your heart just for a second? Let's notice how different that feels if you imagine your heart is upward facing versus downward. It just feels a lot warmer and more open. So one way to cultivate this upward facing heart is um, a fellow retreatant who I sat with in the 1980s, 40 years ago. He's a leader in the death and dying movement in the Bay Area. His name is Frank O. Well, that's his last name is O for short because it's a longer name. But he he recently had a stroke and this is, interview is um, somewhat right after his stroke. So he's short of breath. And he's talking about what he learned from the stroke and, the, and about the heart. And I, I just found it very moving. So I wanted to share it with you. So Paul, go ahead and play that clip. Awareness can hold all this. And I'm not trying to be new agey, uh, it's true. Awareness can hold all this. Uh, it doesn't need to push anything away. Uh, it's one of my greatest uh, gratitudes is that for 50 years I've practiced loving awareness. Yeah. And that that discriminating wisdom can could watch my brain go offline, right. can help my brain to heal can give me the capacity to uh, withstand, tolerate, forbear what you're describing. So one of the ways I do it, Courtney, is I lie in bed at night and I think I'm alone and I'm scared. And I reflect on all the people who are lying in bed at night, alone, in pain, mm -hmm. and 
while that might think it would upset us, in fact, it's a great source of strength for me because my innate compassion emerges and gives me the capacity to be with the suffering of our world. Mm. So going toward that suffering, going, and it gives rise to compassion. Yeah. Thank you. So this loving awareness keep coming back that he was saying that was a refuge when he had his stroke. Dropping down from this to that. And you know, really the ego and the whole selfing thing, it's like a Ponzi scheme. And you know what a Ponzi scheme, it's really hard to walk away because you've given so much money and then they tell you you need to give more and you just don't want to get out of it. And people get trapped in it because they've already put in so much. And, you know, at this point in our life, 20 years, 30 years, 40, 60 years, you put in a lot into the Ponzi scheme. But it's okay, just walk away. Like the only thing you can do with a Ponzi scheme no matter what promises it makes, you walk away. You drop down into what's direct and true in the heart. And a little bit more on this with Frank here. So we'll play the last part. The, the, the initial few months of the stroke I was kind of resting in what I would call a non-conceptual awareness. No thoughts, no, no anxiety, mm. none. Now my brain is starting to recover. And with that recovery comes perception. And with perception comes identity. And with identity comes anxiety. Mm. Uh, so sometimes I'm nostalgic for those early days. Uh, the, the doctors and the clinicians who I work with, they keep speaking to me about recovery yeah. and the brain's capacity for neuroplasticity and such. And uh, I've actually found myself not so interested in that. Uh, I'm much more interested in discovery. What can I discover? This is now my re new reality. What can I discover here? Mm. And you know, I have this feeling that if I stay true to in this path of integrity and love that we've been talking about here, I might not recover, but I will be amazed at what I discover on the way. Mm. So that's what's now and what's next. Mm. Thank you so much for showing those, Paul. This really deep, heartfelt man who's practiced 40 years, making use of everything with heart, with awareness, the refuge of awareness, with the refuge of the heart. And 
eventually I really want you to feel and see the infinite quality of love and awareness. And uh, they, they come together. They're really not, I'm talking about them as two separate things. Awareness, stillness, love. They're just one thing that's infinite and you are it. And it's okay if this is just a concept right now. We start with the concepts. We start with the concepts and then eventually through working with the concepts for long enough and chewing on it, it goes from here to here. So don't, don't worry about it being a concept. Eventually, you'll know that you are it. You'll know it from here. You'll grok it. Just keep going. So the very last piece on the infinite quality here, everything comes as one together. Your heartbeat and your breath come with the whole universe. How could they not? You can't have a you without the rest of life. You are life, all of it, as one whole infinite universe thing. And don't think that death changes that. Just takes away one component, turns it into another. So realize you are this total environment infinite as awareness and love. Pierre Teilhard de Chardin writes, we are one after all you and I, together we suffer, together exist, and forever we will recreate each other. So we're just this one so you can relax you know the total environment pandemic or not or whatever the total environment does not come and go does the total environment infinity have loss does infinity have gain you know whenever I talk about getting or losing things my teacher just laughs he goes is there gain in infinity is there loss in infinity? Total environment cannot be destroyed. The total infinity can never be destroyed. So again, in the fire of change, know what is unchanging. Know it as you. Not something separate that you that you have to find or get. One student that actually is on this retreat noticed one day when we were talking, oh, the human evaporates into the eternal. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> the human evaporates into the eternal. And then the entire cosmos becomes your personality. And then it's a lot of fun when you put the human suit back on. It's just a game. And that doesn't mean that you don't care and it doesn't matter, but 
you're just wearing the human suit in infinite awareness and infinite love. Now that's fun. <laughs> Whatever you do with that. So I'd like to close with a poem by Mary Oliver. And my brother sent this to me. He's actually a poet. And I, I haven't seen it in any books. I don't know where it was. It Maybe a more obscure poem of hers. It's called Bone. Understand, I am always trying to figure out what the soul is and where hidden and what shape. And so last week, when I found on the beach the ear bone of a pilot whale that may have died hundreds of years ago, I thought, Maybe I was close to discovering something. For the ear bone is the portion that lasts longest in any of us, man or whale, shaped like a squat spoon with a pink scoop where once in the lively swimmer's head, it joined its two sisters in the house of hearing. It was only two inches long. And I thought the soul might be like this, so hard, so necessary, yet almost nothing. Beside me, the gray sea was opening and shutting its wave doors, unfolding over and over its time-ridiculing roar. I looked, but I couldn't see anything through its dark-knit glare. Yet don't we all know the golden sand is there at the bottom, though our eyes have yet never seen it, nor can our hands ever catch it lest we would sift it down into fractions and facts and certainties. In what the soul is also, I believe, I will never quite know. Though I play at the edges of knowing, truly I know our part is not knowing, but looking and touching and loving, which is the way I walked on softly through the pale pink morning light. So trust this process as you walk on into awareness and love for the rest of this retreat, looking and knowing and touching and loving. Just keep it simple like that. Infinite awareness, infinite love. and keep discovering like Frank said. So let's sit for a minute.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.